Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Anna Boozer for a conversation about life in Roman Egypt. Dr. Boozer is a professor in the anthropology program at the Graduate Center and a professor of Roman Mediterranean archaeology and ancient history in the Department of History at Baruch College at City University of New York, based in the U.S. She's the author of uh, a forthcoming book, At Home in Roman Egypt, a social archaeology, which will be published by Cambridge University Press this year. And she's co-editor of the book, Archaeologies of Empire, Local Participants in Imperial Trajectories, which was published by University of New Mexico Press and the Society for Advanced Research. And she joins us today from the U.S. Welcome to the call, Anna. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, so we're chatting about uh, what life was like in um, Roman Egypt today. To create sufficient background, Anna, can you um, share how Egypt uh, came under Roman rule in the first place at one point in time? Absolutely. So Rome was only the latest of a long series of conquerors of Egypt. Um, Egypt had been ruled by Nubians, Assyrians, Achaemenid Persians, um, and then finally by uh, the Greeks um, under the Ptolemies. So the Romans came onto the scene rather late in the game, but that was somewhat advantageous to them. So the Ptolemies had started to have a client relationship with Rome um, quite a bit prior to Rome's um, annexing of Egypt. And so over the years, Rome started to get um, involved in the, uh, both the domestic affairs and the foreign affairs of Ptolemaic Egypt. And then finally, um, they got much more involved um, once there were some issues going on within Rome itself. Um, so Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 BCE, and that led to um, a number of different rivals uh, trying to become the next ruler of uh, the Roman world. And Mark Antony fled to Egypt um, and started to establish it as a power base and ended up having an affair with Cleopatra, as is very well known as part of popular history. Um, and when um, he was defeated, he and Cleopatra were defeated um, by Octavian at the Battle of Actium. Uh, that was the end of uh, Ptolemaic Egypt, and Rome ended up swooping into Egypt and taking over at that point. So it was um, a rather bloodless um, conquest of Egypt in many senses, because Rome had already been involved in Egypt for a very long time, and it only took that, that final maneuver to, to take over uh, Roman Egypt and, and make it theirs. Okay. And an episode that um, I did with uh, Professor Richard Alston from Royal Holloway, University of London, uh, it was published a couple weeks ago, so I forget the episode, but for anyone listening that wants to dive into more what Anna was sharing about um, Mark Antony's death, Cleopatra's uh, death uh, around that period of time. Um, that was the kind of the end of that episode because we chatted about uh, Mark Antony's life in that particular episode. So that's kind of how the, the, the bookend, if you will, of that episode uh, ended. Okay, so uh, thank you, Anna, uh, for expanding on that. So um, can you describe then, so Rome, it sounds like, was involved 
in, in Egypt uh, prior to it uh, becoming more of a, a, f- a formal, formally uh, having hegemony in Egypt. You, you mentioned the Ptolemaics were, were ruling it. Um, so can you describe the juxtaposition between, you know, Ptolemaic Egypt and Roman Egypt to whatever degree that might be? Like environmentally, did it change much once Rome had more of this formalized uh, rule over over the country? There are quite a few changes that happened under the Romans and also quite a few things that stayed the same. Um, so there were a few differences in which Rome wanted to um, formalize their control over the region and also um, rework some of the social and political arrangements in Egypt. So um, there's quite a few different things that happened. Um, one is that um, in terms of the bureaucracy of Egypt, um, Rome was quite concerned that they might have um, other people trying to use Egypt as a place to garner power and then um, take over Rome itself. And so they decided to put someone in charge who was of a lower rank um, than um, they had ruling provinces elsewhere. So the emperor appointed a Roman governor at the level of a prefect um, over Alexandria and Egypt. Um, Note Alexandria and Egypt and not just Egypt itself, because Alexandria was considered somewhat separate. Um, And then they stationed um, people around Egypt to help keep control over it. Um, They also designated certain cities as um, Greek cities. And so you had Alexandria, Nocritus, Ptolemais, and later on Antonopolis that were so-called Greek cities. And the people living there had a special status under Roman rule. Um, And then they also, in addition to giving people special status on the basis of locality, um, they also gave people different statuses on the basis of ethnicity. So um, if you were a Roman citizen early on under Roman rule, um, you were exempt from the poll tax, you got lots of special benefits. Um, Greeks of the so-called Greek cities also uh, had a special status under Roman rule. And then everybody who lived in the countryside, regardless of what their biological ancestry was, were reclassified under the Romans as Egyptian. And that had, um, that didn't really honor some of the long term um, family views of themselves. Um, And it had a a big consequence on the rights of those people in the land, they had paid a higher poll tax, and they had fewer legal rights um, under Roman rule. In addition to these um, social and political changes, um, they did make some environmental changes. Um, they were very interested in maximizing the agricultural potential of Egypt. Um, Egypt is, of course, the quintessential breadbasket of Rome. And with the Nile, it was very easy to move goods um, downriver, so going north of the Nile, um, to the ocean, and then carrying it back to Rome, um, as well as to, as to Alexandria, um, which was one of the premier cities of the Roman Empire. And so they expanded a lot of the um, work that prior empires had put into expanding the agricultural potential of areas of Egypt, um, and particularly in areas such as the Fayum, which is located near modern day Cairo, and also the oases of the Western Desert, um, which are um, just west of um, Upper Egypt, um, as they would classify it. And so in all of those areas, they tried to increase that agricultural potential to increase exports, Um, And they seem to have had a fairly stringent taxation system um, on the people of Egypt to extract all of those resources. 
Um, all of those may sound like grim consequences, but um, for women, it may have been a little bit better under Roman rule because um, women in Egypt had historically had um, a lot more flexibility than women in other areas of the ancient world. Um, but under the Ptolemies, um, under Greek law, women had a lot less rights. So we see things like women's land ownership and ownership of small businesses and things like that declined quite a bit under Ptolemaic rule, um, and except in Upper Egypt, which was a much more traditional um, Egyptian zone of Egypt. Um, under the Romans, we see women's land ownership and ownership of small businesses going up again. So not quite as high as it may have been um, in Pharaonic Egypt, but it did rise. And so we do see the, the women are able to um, exert a little bit more independence um, under the Romans. Okay. And to make it um, clear in terms of... Um demarcating the period of time can you uh can you uh, can you share when this uh roman rule began officially and when it end ended just so we have it in our minds as a period of time sure so um so around 30 bce is when octavian annexed egypt when he conquered mark antony and cleopatra at the naval battle of actium um, and then they established their first prefect um, shortly thereafter. And um, then around 100 CE, um, Trajan added the Sinai Peninsula um, to that earlier area of Egypt that they had conquered, which basically maps onto the borders of present day Egypt um, at that point. Um, and then um, Egypt continued along until the fourth century CE, where you had the fracturing of the Eastern and Western empires um, uh, for the Roman Empire. But Egypt continued to be very wealthy and to thrive during this period, up until about 641, when we had the Muslim conquest of Egypt. Um, and that, again, um, really centered upon Alexandria as, as the cornerstone of, of Egypt and uh, the Roman rule in Egypt. So once, once Alexandria fell, um, that became, um, Egypt then became a part of that kingdom. Okay. So, and I'll, I'll probably one of the wrap up questions will be to, to try to bookend this conversation some, somewhat is to speak about when the, the, the hegemony ended in uh, when and, 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 and why a little bit in more detail, the hegemony ended uh, in Egypt um, with, with uh, Rome um, ruling. Okay, so what, uh, so in this period of time, um, and it may vary over time, so please feel free as, you know, inside of your answer, what percentage of, um, migration immigration occurred from you know roman uh, roman areas uh from from the north uh across the sea into into egypt was there a lot of immigration from the roman empire or did a lot of the uh inhabitants in egypt really stay the the, the same and then obviously they're they're having children and so on and so forth but uh, you know what what level of immigration was occurring the immigration levels were not as high as one might think. Once once an area is incorporated into an empire, usually you do see large population movements happen, um, both from the core of the empire into the periphery and people from the periphery into the core. Um, that happens less often in Roman Egypt than we see in um, other world uh, empires because um, 
Rome is very concerned about uh, people using it as a power base. So they didn't allow free uh, travel in Egypt as much as in other places. Um, that's not to say that no immigrants came in, but it was it was less of a less of an easy place to to move into. Um, they fairly closely monitored uh, movement into Egypt. Um, we see um, places that were kind of like border control offices um, at the borders of Egypt, just to keep track of where people were going and what they were doing. Um, you did have um, people who were part of the Roman Empire come in with the military, and um, they might have been uh, people who were from um, from Italy, from the core area of Rome, but they might have been from uh, areas all across the empire. So we do have quite a few people um, from around coming into Egypt. Um, but a lot of the people that um, we see as part of Rome, Egypt, were probably already in place. Um, we had a large Greek population that had been moving there for a long period of time. Um, before Ptolemaic rule and under Ptolemaic rule, you had a number of Jews living in Egypt as well. Um, and you had a lot of people coming um, from the south of Egypt, um, up from Nubia, especially focusing um, on pilgrimage sites such as Philae um, in the very south of Egypt. So it was a really multicultural society. Lots of different religions were practiced there. Lots of different people were there. Um, it was a really uh, thriving, interesting place um, back in the Roman period. Okay, what do you think Rome was most interested in, in in Egypt? Like why put resources and focus on Egypt amongst uh, many holdings in that period of time? You did mention, uh, I think you mentioned taxes. I think you used the term taxes. Um, there, there was uh, re, uh, food and stuff com coming up from Egypt. But what, what, uh, what do you think were the like the main reasons uh, Rome focused so much on Egypt? Well, Egypt was uh, the wealthiest by far of all of Rome's holdings. Um, it had, um, and that was really grounded on agricultural production. Agricultural production was the the cornerstone of work um, in antiquity. Um, so they had a lot of wonderful agricultural resources that they wanted. They wanted to also ensure that um, people did not use Egypt to, to work against Rome and use it as some sort of um, area to coalesce power in the Eastern Empire. So it was important for them, um, not just to for as a place of extraction, but also as a place um, to just hold off from anybody else who might have interest in it. Um, Egypt was also an interesting crossroads. Um, so they did have trade relationships with um, with areas in Nubia as well as further south in Africa. So they had a lot of interesting trade goods coming up from there um, through desert routes and also along the Nile through the cataracts. Um, people also um, traded from India um, into Egypt. Um, so there are a number of sites um, in the Sinai as well as um, elsewhere in Egypt where um, people came in um, with trade goods and um, brought them up uh, up through the deserts onto the Nile and then carried them to Alexandria and then on to Rome. Um, so we do have um, a lot of really interesting trade, uh, trade options happening that way um, from the Eastern desert um, that were brought from further afield. There are also um, prestige goods that the Romans liked, um, porphyry, which is a beautiful purple stone that we see adorning a lot of beautiful structures in Rome itself, um, was something that they liked to extract out of Egypt and bring there. Um, and that was probably based on the, the lovely properties of the stone itself, but it was also an advertisement of Rome's power that um, they had conquered an area um, that was so far away, that was renowned in the ancient world. Um, it was really thought as a very ancient, grand culture um, so it was really a feather in Rome's cap to have uh, 
Egypt as one of its um, as one of its holdings. Okay. Uh, earlier, you mentioned um, several cities, Alexandria being a common one that kind of stuck out for me. But you mentioned several uh, cities in Egypt. Were any of these major urban centers um, heavily supported by Rome in the sense that they invested a lot into developing that city? Or were all these major urban centers already, for the most part, established? Hmm. Yeah, so, um, so some of them were established. So Alexandria already existed. Um, and Nocritus had been a pre-existing Greek city um, well, well before um, Alexandria was even established. And um, the only one that they established the, the new Greek cities was Antinoopolis, which they invested heavily in after Hadrian's lover grounded the Nile um, at that location. Um, but Rome did have an interest in people in cities, and they did prioritize um, people living in cities. If you were uh, Greek, um, uh, labeled as Greek, uh, living in one of the so-called Greek cities, you had enhanced status um, and um, were also expected to help um, contribute to um, some of the structures um, in these cities, as was a common thing in Greek cities elsewhere in the Mediterranean. Um, and the Romans themselves also did invest in their in those cities to try to make them, um, you know, try to make them flourish. Um, and even if you were an Egyptian living in those um, in those cities, you had better rights than you had um, in the countryside. Um, so they did really prioritize the cities. Um, the Roman Empire liked to work through cities. They kind of thought through cities. That was an easier way for them to control their populations. So those were certainly um, a particular area of interest for them. Okay. Um, so what was life like for people from a vocation, um, a, a profession perspective? And this is a very big question. I know that. So do, so do your best to kind of, cat, if you could, um, categorize things into the, you know, maybe there, there's sectors, there's, there's industries. What were people uh, doing to earn uh, sustenance in uh, Roman Egypt? So there are quite a range of different things that people could do. Uh, the vast majority of people were what we could consider to be peasants, um, working the land that was owned by someone else, be it the state, um, a temple, or a wealthy individual who was based in a city. And so those people probably had a very hard existence. Um, they had taxation um, responsibilities. Um, they worked land that did not belong to them and sometimes would move from one uh, farming location to another to try to um, get their funds together. Um, so that was what um, that was something that men would be involved in. But we also do see that uh, women and children seem to have gotten involved, particularly during peak periods of the agricultural season. Um, and they also would do contribute work, um, you know, for, you know, remuneration. So sometimes children were sent to work um, to bring back um, funding for the family. Um, there were also other jobs that these people, the vast majority of the population of Egypt would do. So they could run oil presses, um, they could um, contribute to weaving um, items. So although um, there are a lot of professional guilds um, around Egypt, there were a lot of um, domestic weaving took place as well. Um, there was a lot of um, that kind of level of, of craft work. Um, there were also artisans who may have been resident in places um, such as Alexandria. So we have some places there um, where people may have been making glass, um, people have been making um, 
fine um, metal work. And so those were people who lived a somewhat different existence from people who uh, lived in the countryside and um, worked agricultural fields. Um, there's some areas where, in, such as Kamaldika, where there seemed to be areas where um, there was a workshop on one floor and then people were residing in little small, um, small cubicles upstairs. Um, so people may have, um, may have had a very different sort of life um, and getting by um, in a place like Alexandria. Um, wealthier people um, would have owned um, large amounts of land um, and they probably would have had people to help work it for them. Um, particularly if they were residing in a city, um, they would might have um, a country home somewhere and they'd go and, and tour um, areas where other people were working for them. Vineyards, for example, were um, highly profitable crops that um, you might have somebody else work for you. What was the uh, language or languages that were most spoken in this period of time? Mm. So um, the vast majority of the population probably still spoke Egyptian. Um, in the countryside, that was their, their common language. Um, the people in the Greek cities and people who were of um, Greek descent or who wanted to be part of that culture uh, operated in Greek. Um, and it was really a very tiny, tiny percentage of people who um, use Latin. Um, that was really something that was confined to official military documents um, and to people who may have been um, of, of um, Roman extraction. So the main languages were, were Egyptian and Greek. Okay. What was the, um, what was the religious orientation of people that... Um, were there before Rome at mm -hmm. by this point in time? So the religion of Egypt appears to be quite seductive, both to Egyptians and to others. So the Egyptian religion had a great longevity. Um, a lot of the traditional gods continue to thrive under Roman rule. Um, and even though the Romans started to um, basically starve the temples, they weren't giving them um, a lot of opportunities to um, earn funding. They didn't give them as much funding. Um, they so the, the, even as the temples started to close down, um, domestic religion continued to thrive and focused on the ancient gods. So the goddess Isis, who um, ended up spreading herself outside of Egypt across the Roman Empire and can even be found in Roman Britain. Um, she was a very popular goddess at this time and even took on a lot of the powers of other goddesses, both native Egyptian as well as um, Greek and Roman goddesses. Um, there is the very popular domestic god, Bess, who is uh, associated with women and fertility, protecting children, um, and also just the family generally. Um, Bess continued to be an incredibly popular god um, during this time, and we see him thriving even after Christianity took over. So Christianity um, was the other big religion, um, which took great inroads into Egypt, probably starting in the third century, um, but we really start to see it firmly in place in the fourth century. Um, the early churches um, that appear um, seem to be in the Dakhla Oasis um, in the Western desert. And we have them in um, villages, um, even small villages um, start to have um, churches appearing at this time. So Christianity was really the, the point when there was a major change in uh, Egyptian religious practices. Uh, so at that point, people start to turn aside from the old gods and start to embrace a new religion, um, which thrived in Egypt until the Muslim conquest. It was, the so it was in the fourth century that 
uh, Rome had an edict to uh, ban uh, non-Christian uh, religions and, and cults. Um, it was was it the fourth was it the fourth century? Did I get the century right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, when that occurred, did that did that edict um, effectively ban worship of traditional religions in Egypt? So they did try to do that. So they, they officially closed the temples. Um, the temple at Philae was the last one to be closed. Um, but it does seem that um, people did continue to practice at home. Um, so that's one of the, the things that I find particularly interesting is um, the way that people um, practiced religion and practiced um, their everyday lives um, alongside these sort of macro scale changes. So you have edicts coming out and official closure of the temples, which really changed um, things like um, the religious calendar and the religious processions that would take place, the festivals that would happen. But then at home, people were still worshiping the old gods. Um, they um, seem to have um, moved over from going to temples and going to um, small um, altars around town to then um, going to the tombs of um, Christians um, that were well known and taking bits of soil from from their their tombs and bringing it home to bring them blessings. Um, so some of the practices that were common um, in ancient Egyptian religion continue to live on in a slightly different form um, than they had earlier. So, um, so what we read about at a large scale doesn't always play out exactly how one might imagine um, at the domestic level. Okay. Um, what was, how would you describe generally what family life and customs were like involving both the, the, the male, the female, children? How would you describe family life in this period of time? So family life um, was focused on um, a, a woman and a man getting married. Um, usually they were probably set up by other family members. Um, sometimes, uh, peculiarly in Roman Egypt, uh, full brother to full sister would marry one another. Um, it's called brother-sister marriage, and it's a hotly contested topic because um, it was once thought that um, the taboo against um, against intermarriage within a family was something that was so abhorrent that no one would do it. But we have pretty ample evidence to suggest that brother-sister marriage did happen. Um, other marriages that, that happened outside of the brother-sister um, marriage may have been to close neighbors, cousins, things like that. Um, and that was some way of, a, a way of securing the family wealth and ensuring it didn't come dispersed too widely. Um, when uh, a man and a woman married, they would usually move into the man's home. He, so he, they would move into the paternal home and they would live there and start their family there. And until the, the oldest male um, had died, that man would not be the head of his household. So his own father would be the head of the household if he was still alive. Um, the children and um, cousins might grow up um, next to each other. If you had several sons living in one house, um, then their children would all grow up together. Um, some people did own slaves. Um, servants may have existed, but were probably a little less common. Um, and slaves and slave children may have also been part of that household. Um, so there were probably very busy places. Um, you may have had quite a few people living in what we would consider to be um, a very small uh, space. Um, and so we can consider um, 
that a lot of people probably really knew each other very well in villages and were intermarried, interrelated, um, running into each other all the time. Um, and even in cities, um, neighborhoods may have been closely joined to one another um, through family ties and close relationships. Okay. What was the, um, how would you describe what the role then? So you mentioned, I think you mentioned earlier, men were uh, very, very active. I, I, I believe we're, you were talking about agriculture at that t- time. So what was the role of the, the, the female head of the household? Hmm. So women um, in Roman Egypt usually were in charge of um, all of the working of the goods that men would bring in. Um, so they would um, do kind of less intensive grinding of grain than you might find um, in workshops, but they would grind up food um, and prepare it to be consumed. Um, they took care of um, small animals, so chickens, um, pigs, things like that, um, doves. Uh, they had dove cots uh, kind of hovered over all of the cities and villages in Roman Egypt. Um, they took care of those. Um, and they took care of all these animals. They um, ate the eggs from the chickens and the meat from the chickens and the meat from the um, pigs. So they had to prepare all of those foods. They prepared breads and porridges. Um, they had to keep the house clean, which was probably a difficult task with sand laden wind blowing in often, especially if you were um, on the edges of a settlement or located out in the desert. Um, and they also had to procure water, which must have been a really um, challenging task um, in some of these places to go quite um, further afield from their home to go and bring in water um, throughout the day to wash clothes, to prepare food, um, to clean the house, um, to take care of somebody if they're sick, as well as um, providing some that you might want to drink on occasion. Um, so they had a pretty busy schedule um, with those tasks, as well as making clothing, repairing clothing, taking care of children. Um, so we can imagine that women's um, tasks were extremely, um, extremely challenging and filled their days quite, quite mm. rigorously. Um, Dr. Uh, Louise Hitchcock from the University of Melbourne has been on the show and we were chatting about uh, 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 some Greek islands in the Bronze Age, some, some former settlements. But she had mentioned um, in that episode kind of an anecdotal story that she had done some work in Syria at some point. So she got an opportunity to look at dwellings and how families uh, habitated in, uh, in, in Syria. And um, so when it comes to Egypt in this period of time, so, okay, so one of the things she described was that a family might be a lot of members of the family and they, they would be, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, but they'd be basically in this uh, large room or, or a room, right? And you'd have a lot of, uh, could be a, quite a few family members. So when we juxtapose that to Egypt in this period of time, can you describe what the dwellings were were like? Were we dealing with uh, large open spaces or small open spaces? Uh, Were there several rooms? Can you can you describe that and also how the the you know, the transition and interaction between where where cooking's occurring versus where eating's occurring versus you know the everyday you know where sleeping's occurring where entertainment's occurring can you try to paint that picture for everyone sure absolutely there's a few different sites that give us really nice glimpses into domestic mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. um so um moving from the high echelons of society down to lower ones um and alexandria kamaldika has given us insight into some of the really lavish dwellings that some people lived in. Um, So um, there's um, 
some beautiful houses that have um, mosaics, uh, wall paintings, really large buildings that seem to have had open spaces incorporated within them, multiple rooms. Um, some of them may have had um, specialized usage, so um, they might have used a, build a room mostly for, for sleeping in, um, which is rare in other sites. Um, at Karanis, um, which is probably the best known site or the, the most thoroughly excavated site for um, houses during the Roman period. We have multi-story structures that were probably quite dark. Um, so they painted the walls really dark colors um, and accentuated um, areas where the bricks were with like white lines to outline those. Um, the wall paintings that they had tended to also use dark colors and tend to focus on niches, which were areas where um, people would conduct domestic worship. Outside of those houses, they had really large uh, courtyards that might have been owned by uh, one household or might have been shared by several households. And that's where women did most of their cooking. Um, they usually had their small domestic animals running around while they were cooking, um, as well as probably small children, as well as neighbors. So those were probably pretty cacophonous uh, spaces for them to work in, um, whereas the insides of the house were probably um, a little bit more confined and stuffy. Um, they didn't usually also have windows in the houses. So um, if they had any openings, it was usually high up on the wall. So it wasn't to provide a view, but rather to get air circulating and to let in a little bit of light. Then in the Dakhla Oasis, uh, which is where I work, um, people have excavated a number of structures that appear to be single story structures. Um, some of them have a large room um, or multiple large rooms um, towards the center of the structure. Um, some of these may have been open or had a light screening roof over them. Um, some of them may have been roofed. Um, and these air offered an area for people to get together. Um, they also tended to paint the walls in, in much paler colors, so they were probably not um, as dark inside as the ones that were at Karanis. Um, they did have large exterior courtyards where women conducted a lot of their cooking and uh, taking care of domestic animals and all of that. But we do see some houses have cooking areas incorporated into the house itself. So some women seem to have baked bread and um, cooked all of their food inside instead of in the exterior courtyard. Um, so there's quite a different um, range of households, um, house types um, across Egypt that we have at this time. And unfortunately, we don't have as many as we would like for the Nile Valley, um, but those may have been different again from what we saw in those three other areas. Okay. Um, and you mentioned Nile a, a few few times. So I want to get this question in. So by this point in time, did most people congregate and live around the Nile? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Nile was, um, was really um, the heart of Egypt. Um, people uh, lived up and down the Nile. It was a very easy way to get um, from one place to another. And so we can imagine a continuum of habitation, uh, particularly on the areas of highland, which couldn't be um, used for habitation. So they're called turtlebacks today because they hop up a little bit from um, the lower levels, which were usually um, prioritized for agricultural purposes. Um, you did have areas away from the Nile, such as the Fayum and the Oases, um, areas in the Eastern Desert um, that people lived. Um, and those were not the normal areas to live in, but we do know more about those areas um, because they tend to be better preserved since they don't have um, later occupation as much built on top of it and um, have, have also been drier conditions. So um, they haven't had later agriculture in the area. Okay. 
top three foods if uh, you have to speculate or if you know that's great but what were the top three foods that people were uh, eating uh, in this period of time and uh, related to that aside from water what were, what were, what were people uh, popularly drinking mm-hmm. so breads and porridges remained um, the, the cornerstone of the diet um, people also ate a lot of Um, legumes and pulses such as lentils Um, and then for other sorts of proteins um, chicken and eggs um, were really really common uh, foods Um, in terms of beverages um, so Egypt had a long um, standing um, alcoholic beverage um, making making all the alcoholic alcoholic beverages so beer um, and wines were common Um, they had had um, a bit of a cap on uh, domestic um, brewing, but that was lifted under Roman rules. So people made a lot of home brews at that time. Wine became the very, very popular um, drink of choice, um, particularly um, as we moved on into Roman rule. Um, Romans didn't tend to like uh, Egyptian wine as much as other uh, vintages of wine, um, but it had been prized in earlier periods. Okay, so to uh, bookend, this uh this this episode um and you mentioned it briefly but just to expand on it a little bit um why and how did uh rome's hegemony of egypt in this period of time uh end and you did you did mention um uh a a conquest um um by a uh a caliphate um can you mention the uh the caliphate as well uh, in that in that uh, answer, whether it was the and I don't know off the top of my head whether it was the Rashidun or the Umayyad, if you happen to know offhand. So um, so at around this time, so Rome had been kind of losing their their grasp on a lot of areas um, over the course of time, and so they ended up bifurcating between Eastern and Western Empire, um, and the area around Egypt had been ruled um, from Syria. Um, for some time during late antiquity. Um, During late antiquity, you had a lot of changes happening um, in the social structure of Egypt. Um, Private lands started to coalesce much more into large estates um, during late antiquity, um, which was a a big change, especially in the fifth and sixth centuries, which is a big big change from earlier phases. Um, So there had a lot of those, a lot of those changes happening at that time. And as Rome was kind of destabilizing at multiple levels, you had the rise in power um, on the Arabian Peninsula of uh, the Muslim Empire. And so they started to attack, they moved towards Egypt and they attacked um, areas there. A lot of um, the uh, forces that were in Egypt at the time had retreated to um, fortress areas and um, and areas that were protected by walls um, to try to kind of get away from those incursions. And they were able to withstand um, Muslim attacks for about a year or so um, before they finally breached into Alexandria. Um, and it, with that, that was um, the last gasp of Roman rule over Egypt. Okay. Um, how do you think that Rome's time in Egypt over a few, uh, you know, you maybe call it a several, several centuries, how do you think it's influenced uh, Egypt today? Hmm. So, yeah, that's a challenging question. Um, it's, it's hard to say because it was such a, it was such a, 
um, layered history of domination by other people. And we do see a lot of um, thriving of longstanding Egyptian traditions. I think one of the, the most significant changes um, that happened under Roman rule um, was probably the introduction of Christianity. Uh, because that was the point when um, the long-standing Egyptian religion um, did did fall by the wayside, which was the first time that that, that had happened, even under all of those foreign conquerors. Um, so the embrace of Christianity really um, set the stage for Egyptians to start to embrace other religions as well, including um, uh, converting to Islam, uh, which is the dominant religion in Egypt today. Um, there is still a thriving Egyptian um, a population um, that is Christian. There are also still um, Jewish Egyptians there, um, but that was one of the biggest changes that happened um, under under Roman rule that we can still see um, the threads of um, continuing today. It was great chatting with you today, Anna. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much. If anybody wants to pick up um, Dr. Boozer's forthcoming book that is germane to this conversation today. I'll mention it again. At Home in Roman Egypt, A Social Archaeology. It will be coming out sometime this year. I will drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. I'll also, of course, uh, drop a link to the other one I mentioned as well, Archaeologies of the Empire, Local Participants and Imperial Trajectories. That one is already out. Uh, Anna and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.